Holy Father, we are in worship. As the choir was singing, as the violin was playing, our hearts swept heavenward, realizing that in the throne room of the universe, worship is 24-7. You don't have a Sabbath there. There's no setting sun to mark the time. It's worship 24-7. And every time we worship here below, we connect. We're connected right now. Father, keep the connection. Keep the connection fervent. Whatever you need to come from this teaching, we're depending on the mighty spirit of Christ to do it. This is your time. We are your people. And it is Jesus' mission that binds us together. We wait on you now in Christ's name. Amen. Since this is the uh, fall classic time, I'm talking about the World Series, it was Yogi Berra who said, it's tough making predictions, especially about the future. <laughs> and it really is tough. But I'm unashamed in making a prediction this morning that I believe that Jesus is coming very soon. Just how soon it could be was impressed upon me this summer when I met a friend of mine who is here today. He's a physician, Fred Bishop. Fred was on our Andrews University campus back in July, and so we fell into conversation together. By the way, Fred and I roomed across the hall from each other at uh, SMC, Southern Matrimonial College, where <laughs> Karen and I met. I, you know, I, I need to introduce my wife. This is my, my girlfriend for 35 and a half years, and I'm just delighted that, that she came and was able to come and join me here. So Fred, and I, Fred, who's not, not only a great uh, physician, but he's very bright theologically, and I said, hey, Fred, what have you been uh, reading lately? And so he's yak, yak, yakking about this and that. He said, oh, by the way, you need to check out chrismartinson.com. I said, I'll do that. I'm, I'm very much interested in trends analysis and so on. And so that night, it was a Sunday, that night, I get down on my little laptop and I type it in chrismartinson.com. I hope you'll go there. VP uh, for a Fortune 300 company living on the, on the seafront in Connecticut began to sense where this old planet is headed. No Christian compu uh, compulsion here. Decided to quit his job, bought a little farm in Massachusetts where he's homeschooling his children. Has set up a website to plead with the human race to listen to him long enough to come to the conclusion he believes is the prevailing truth for this generation right now. ChrisMartinson.com. So I go to this trans, trans analyst, and he has what's called a crash course. It's a series of YouTube videos between three to eight, maybe up to 12 minutes long. You just watch them one right after the other. You get a course in econ economics. It was Chris Martinson who gave me this. I'm going to give it to you right now. On the uh, screen... Boy, if this did what it did in the laptop yesterday, I'm in huge trouble. It did. I mean, if this did what it did in our seminar yesterday, oh, here it is. Hey, there it is. For those of you who are not aficionados of baseball, this is Fenway Park, all right? This is Boston, Massachusetts. Chris, Martin says, Chris Martinson says, let's take an illustration. Let's do this together. You and I will do it right now. Fenway Park. By the way, this is a painting. Got it on Google. Just Google Fenway and came up with that. Chris Martinson says, okay, let's assume two realities. Reality number one, I'm going to handcuff you. 
I'm going to handcuff you to the, uh, to the highest bleacher right up here in the top. Just, 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 just take that last row. That's reality number one. I'm going to handcuff you there. The other reality we'll, we'll need to assume is that Fenway Park will be watertight, all right? So it'll, be, it'll just be one huge cubic space of, that can be filled with water. And I have a magic eyedropper. So you're handcuffed to the top row of the bleachers. I have a magic eyedropper. I come down here to the pitcher's mound. You see the pitcher's mound? And I'm going to drop a single drop of water on that pitcher's mound. Now, the reason it's a magic eyedropper is because every 60 seconds, that single drop of water will double in size. So after one minute, it's the equivalent of two drops. After two minutes, it's equivalent of four, and so on and so on. Now, here's Martinson's question. You're, you're up there at the top of the bleachers. At what point do you need to begin to think seriously about extricating yourself from that handcuff and getting out before the, before the stadium fills with water? At what point? At the first drop? <laughs> you probably went into medicine, didn't you? <laughs> All right. Yeah, you probably want to start thinking about it immediately. That's a good answer. At 12.44 p.m. All right, so, so we did this at noon. I, I, I left out that other key piece. We did this at noon. So you're up there at noon, 12 o'clock. At 12.44 p.m., the water in Fenway Park is now at five feet. You picture it? Five feet. It's not even, not even up to the wall, over the wall yet. Five feet. 93% of Fenway Park is still unfilled with water. You got it? That's 12.44. Ladies and gentlemen, if you do not extricate yourself in the next five minutes at 12.49, the entire park will be filled with water. It's called the power of the exponential. The power of the exponential. And then he quotes a, uh, a scholar named uh, Albert Bartlett. The greatest shortcoming of the human race is our inability to understand the exponential function. And then he launches, if you take his crash course, he launches into what he calls the hockey stick graphs of life. Take the human population, for example. Here's the beginning of time, where, wherever we establish that. Here's the beginning of time. Here's the human race. Here's the graph, all right? The human race, the human race. 1990, 2000, 2007, 2009, and then the graph becomes a hockey stick. In the next 30 years, another billion people will be added to this planet. Where are they going to live? Huh? All right. He says, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the U.S. debt. 1776, here's the U.S. debt. 1776, 1876, 1976, U.S. debt. 2,000 U.S. debt. And suddenly when you get to our, our year, what happens to that debt? It's the hockey stick. Shoots up. The power of the exponential. Let's talk, about, let's talk about oil reserves. And he flips the hockey stick over. We have this much, we have this much. Let's talk about water on the planet. You get the point. Everything's coming up now. The power of the exponential. You got five minutes you know, some of us have been hearing some great testimonies, and it's come up in several of these testimonies. We're living at the, at the edge of time, and Jesus is coming soon, but you know what? I've got to keep my practice going. Uh, Josh was talking about that this morning. I've got to keep my practice going. I've got this, I've got that. Maybe after I retire. We used to be able to think that way if we factored in a steady, steady, unchanging life development. But the moment exponential is introduced into the reality of this human race, suddenly, overnight, literally, boom, shoo, 
that can go up, can it not? Yes or no? But of course, but of course it can. So with Chris Martinson, I'm starting to think, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you know what? And here's another, just a a tangential uh, conviction that came to me. Even if God today folded his arms, ladies and gentlemen, just folded his arms and said, you know what? I'm not even going to touch this. Gabriel, leave leave the human race alone. Let's just time this. Hit your stopwatch, folks. Go. How long will it take for the human race to actually deplete itself and destroy itself from this planet? If God did nothing, no intervention, supernaturally, that's what struck me. We're running out of time. The human race, no Jesus, is still running out of time. Put Jesus in the story, and we're looking, we're looking at a very somber reality. Blinding, blinding. That's the, word that caught, that's the adjective that caught my eye when I read this. I, ever since this Bear Stearns meltdown, I was telling the folks yesterday in the, in the financial seminar, uh, March of 08, I've been just collecting the economic stories because I believe it's the single greatest story. Rome is not the single greatest story. The economy right now is. The, Rome will play straight into that economy. If Revelation 18 means, means anything, it will play straight into that economy. The greatest single story right now is the economy. So I'm, I, I'm subscribing to uh, financial newsletters, investment newsletters. don't have a thing to invest. It's just fun to read. <laughs> All right? So I came across this John Modlin's newsletter, and he's quoting, and I, I printed it off. It's like a 20-page paper, Ph.D., Horace Brock. Listen, all in all, he's talking about where we are. All right? All in all, we have witnessed problems that originated within the U.S. give rise to global scenarios that were virtually unthinkable, italics his, unthinkable as recently as the summer of 2008 and do so with blinding, with blinding speed. There's no Christian perspective here. He's just saying, I can't believe this. Just like that, it's happening. Stuff we never thought could happen at all. Ladies and gentlemen of the Advent Hope, do you understand what that means for the likes of you and me? It means we're on the cusp. We're not waiting for another IED to go off in Afghanistan. I got a boy I sent over there to Iraq, married to my little girl. Joined the Army after they got married. Medic with the U.S. Army Rangers. Never got hit directly by an IED, but he was so close. Who was telling, who was telling the medic story? I was my friend, Louis, this morning. So close to those IEDs. Came back with TBI, traumatic brain injury. Just because of this, the con- 17 documented concussions while he was in Baghdad for those 14 months. 17 documented, medically documented. Yeah. So what, what do you think God is up there? Hey, listen, give me two more IEDs, and I think this world is about to end. You think, that was, you think that's what he's waiting for? He's not waiting. He's not waiting. He's not even waiting for the economy to collapse. He was ready to go 100 years ago. He's ready to go now. Somebody said it today. Or was it last night? Or was it uh, yesterday morning? I don't know who said it, but he was right. God is waiting for the church. He's not waiting for, he's not waiting for the east and west alignments. There's nothing like that. He's ready to go. I have to have a people who have my heart. Ladies and gentlemen, if you do not have the Father's heart, you will never live in the Father's home. That's the truth. And he can't bear the thought of leaving us all here. So he says, let them go a little longer. Maybe if it gets a little worse, they'll have my passion to reach this generation in a single generation. Amen? Amen. No, I wasn't calling for that. I was getting ready to tell you. Amen is perfectly positioned by God. (laughs) Sorry. That's what you get for picking that name. (laughs) Amen is perfectly positioned by God to go for broke right now. 
You can, you can revive the church. God can revive the church through a handful of turned-on medical professionals. I mean, he did it back, he tried to back in 1888, didn't he? So that's the point, ladies and gentlemen. We are living on the cusp. So because of that, hey, because of that, I now understand what she meant. 9T, everybody knows this one. Great changes are soon to take place in our world, and the final movements will be rapid ones. But I'm reading the summer after Chris Martin's, and I'm reading The Great Controversy, and I chance upon this line, the end will come more quickly than we expect. Blinding speed, writes this secular economist. Blinding speed. It'll come more quickly than we expect. Ah, there must be something going on upstairs in the kingdom of God. Then, this is Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. This is just before the return of Jesus, by the way. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and, great and a great hailstorm. Just before Christ returns, the doors of the temple are thrown open, and in vision, apocalyptic vision, old man John is given an insight straight through the doors, and he sees the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. Something's happening right now while we sit here and enjoy good food, good fellowship, and worship together. Something is going on right now in the temple above. And if we're not clear about what's going on, what's, what, what, what's this theme? Here's this, a, a, a faith to practice or something like that? Faith in practice. Faith in practice. Nobody's going to practice faith if we don't believe the most distinctive teaching committed to uh, this community of faith. If we don't believe it, you're not practicing the full faith. You are not practicing the full faith because it's not good news to you. And it's this little, it's this, it's this little gnawing, I just think this is bad news. And this morning I want to disabuse you of that notion. I want to go to the temple with you. I want to find out what is it that's going on above. Grab your study guide. Do you have a study guide here? Were, were they on the chairs? All right. If you didn't get a study guide, hold your hand up. They promised that uh, they'd make sure you get one. If you didn't get one, so just hold your hand up. You'll want the study guide. We're going to go to, you know, I'm used to preaching with my Bible, preaching right out of the Word. And Andrews, I got a, somebody up in the TV control room doing all of this stuff. But uh, I'm, I'm going to read off the screen with you today. So let's go to Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Let's go. This is one of the most dramatic, most dramatic vistas of what's, what is taking place right now in the heavenly temple. Keep your hand up. They're coming to you. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. And by the way, if you somewhere get lost along the way, go to our website, pmchurch.tv. The teaching's there. You can get the podcast. You want to subscribe, you should, we'd be honored to send this to you. you get the video cast. You want to subscribe to that, we'll send them to you. You just want to get the study guide. It's all there. You're looking for God on the docket. That's the one you're looking for for this particular teaching. Got on the docket. All right. Let's go. The series is called The Temple. I'm preaching it right now. So this series is in process at uh, Pioneer Memorial Church. Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place. Whoa. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Only physical description of the first person of the Godhead in all of Holy Scripture. This detail. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Do you know what? At the time Daniel was writing, in the culture of the Near East, and by the way, I grew up in the Far East. Thank you, Johnny. I did grow up in the Far East. And in the Far East, it's very, same. It's very, this, it's very much the same Far East, Near East. Same culture. And that is the older you are, the more revered and respected you are. 
Our poor society here in the West tends to push you off. You get too old. We, want, we don't want to even be able to be reminded about you. We have places, whole communities, where we'll just let you stay. <laughs> we don't want you reminding us that we're all going to end up there someday. That's, a sad, that, that's the tragedy of Western uh, culture. But in the Eastern culture, the whiter your hair, the wiser your mind. So when, when, when God says, hey, Daniel, I want you to take a look at me. How do I look? White hair. White hair, white as snow, white like wool. So there he is, the Ancient of Days. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. Apparently, this is a movable throne. It can go anywhere it wants. It has wheels on it. Isn't that something? Now, watch this. A river of fire. Try to imagine this. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. We had the privilege just a few weeks ago being in Hawaii for a weekend convocation. There's Kailua. There's, there's, the, there's the volcano. So you can picture this throne. It's molten orange water flowing from beneath the throne of the Almighty. Wow. By the way, right now, right now, this isn't only for Daniel. It's right now. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. There are three obviousies. If we read nothing else in Holy Scripture but these two verses, there are three obviousies. I want to run them by you very quickly now. This is obvious. If, if this was all you read, obviously, jot these down. Number one, obviously, this is a court scene. We're not dealing with rocket science here. There are evidentiary records opened. Somebody is examining. It's a court. It says it's a court. All right? Obviously, number one, it's a court scene. Obviously, number two, the court is convened in God's temple. He has his throne. Wherever God's throne is, it's his temple. It's his palace. We, we, you can call it mission control. That's the headquarters. Obviously, the court is convened in God's temple. And here's the third, obviously. Obviously, the court is convened before the end of the world. Has to be. In fact, it's just before the end of the world. If we'd take time to read the entire chapter, we'd have started with the mighty um, empire of Babylon, and then we got Medo-Persia, and then we got Greece, and then we have Rome. It's all in chapter 7, all of it. And just before the conclusion of the human race, there is a court that is convened in the temple above. In fact, take a look at this. Uh, Daniel, this is verse 26, same chapter. But the court will sit. This is at the end of time. There's this religio-political superpower, all right, that it rules the world. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the, sovereign, then the sovereignty and the power and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High, and his, God's kingdom, will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Clearly, the court is convened just before the end of time. Ladies and gentlemen, there is strong biblical evidence, and we're not going to examine it today, you can go to the website if you wish. You already know this anyway. There is strong biblical evidence that the court is already in session. In fact, according to prophetic analysis, the court has been in session for over a century and a half. Am I not right? Over a century and a half. While you and I are talking together right now, the scene in Daniel 7 is taking place. As it will surely dawn upon us, there has never been a period in human history as quietly fraught with urgency as this period is right now. This is as solemn as it gets. Now, you can party on, dude, all you want, but it's still solemn. You can't change that fact. Solemn. 
fraught with meaning. This is not business as usual, not even for amen. You have to think where we are now in time, what's going on in heaven, and what our solitary mission is. We don't have three missions. We don't have two. We have one. Take the everlasting gospel to as many human beings as is humanly possible under the divine anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's our mission. Period. So what is it that's going on? Who's in this scene taking place even as we speak? There are five key players. When I share number five, I'll sit down and it's over. Let's, let's look at these. Five key players. Let's read uh, verse 9 again. As I looked, the thrones were set in place in the ancient of days, took his seat, and his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair on his head was white like wool, and his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze, and a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. Five key players. Key player number one, jot it down. The ancient of days slash judge slash father. Give you a little bit of a moment to get those... Uh, those synonyms down. Ancient of days, slash God the Father, slash judge. Look, this is his temple. It's his throne. This, there's no question here. This is he. Key player number two, the celestial observers, slash jury, if you please. The celestial observers, slash jury. As we noted uh, just a moment ago, there are 100 million plus millions Whoever is in this celestial jury, 100 million plus millions, because 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. And by the way, Daniel and John concur on those figures. So let's just call them the jury. Key player number three, the protagonist slash son of man. Protagonist, what's that mean? That's the leading figure. That is the main character in a drama. Protagonist. The main man. Who's the protagonist here? Watch this. Well, it says, verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language, men and women of every language, worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Son of man. Do you know that the son of man was Jesus' favorite self-designation? Jot that down, please. Son of Man was the title he used to describe himself more than any other single title. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man. And it, that is a direct borrowing and quotation from Daniel chapter 7. I'm that one. I'm the protagonist. I'm the Son of Man. In fact, in that kangaroo court, kangaroo court, early in the morning, he's arraigned as the judge of the universe. He's arraigned. And you remember what he says to Wiley Caiaphas? Caiaphas corners him because Jesus is keeping mute. He's not responding at all. When people are in your face, and you'll get a patient in your face, and you will get a colleague in your face now and then, when people are in your face, hold your ground, say not a word, just hold your gaze. He will say not a single word. No self-defense. But Caiaphas, wily judge that he was, I'll get it out of you. He commands him with a divine vow. But Jesus remained silent through that uh, counter-examination, counter cross-examination. The high priest finally says to him, I charge you. All right, here comes the vow now. I charge you. Under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. You have to tell me now. Jesus can't remain silent. He has to speak. 
in the name of his Father. He's been asked to speak. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you in this rump court in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That is precisely the exact wording of Daniel 7. He quotes Daniel 7 verbatim, coming on the clouds of heaven. I'm the protagonist. Someday the tables will be switched. You'll see it. Whoa. There's no question that the protagonist, the hero of the heavenly courtroom, is the Son of Man. In fact, I want you to notice, I just love this, I want you to notice how central the role of Jesus is to this, what's going on right now. Okay, so you jot these down. Number one, he's the protagonist. We've already got that, but go ahead and put it down. Number one, he's the protagonist. Number two, he is the defense attorney for the condemned. He is the defense attorney for the condemned. You know what, uh, Judge Sotomayor, remember she, she was going through the uh, hearings to become the next uh, justice on the Supreme Court. And so she's being uh, examined by the, uh, the Senate uh, Judicial Committee. And so they say, hey, Judge, tell us a little bit about uh, how, how it was where you grew up. And she said, you know, I grew up in, uh, I grew up in New York City, and uh, I remember watching Perry Mason as a girl and thinking, oh, someday I want to be that. Well, Your Honor, uh, one of the uh, senators responded, Your Honor, actually, Perry Mason was a defense attorney. You have been a prosecutor all your life. There's a big difference. And in fact, and this was Al Franken, it was a brand new, uh, you know, got out of that Minnesota mess, and he's sitting there, and he says, in fact... I was a Perry Mason fan myself. Do you know what? Perry Mason only lost one case. An entire television series. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a defense attorney in the courtroom above who has never lost, according to the records anyway, he has never lost a single case, not even one. Not even one. He's our defense attorney. I love this. John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But... If anybody does sin, I have some very good news for you. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. It's called the defense attorney. We have one who speaks to the Father. It's the, the Greek word parakletos, same word for the Holy Spirit, called to the side of. Jesus said, I'm going to send you the paraklete. Uh, the King James says comforter. It's really the one who's called to your side. I'll be the one called to your side, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So he's the, he's the protagonist. He's the defense attorney. What else is he? Ah, he's the savior of the condemned. It's great to come back to the south. As Tennessee is, this is, big, this is a big Civil War country. Sure it is. You know, we went to Southern, Lookout Mountain, I mean, all of that. We, we, we grew up with that. The, the, the Civil War tales are replete with the stories of an older brother stepping in for little Johnny who fell asleep on guard duty and they were going to execute him the next day. You remember those stories? Replete. They got him in World War II. They have him all through human history. Somebody steps in and says, I'll die for him. That's what John is saying. He's the Savior. That's what the Savior does. John, the very next verse, after he's our defense attorney, look at this. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole wide world. Wow. Oh, my. So he's a protagonist. He's our defense attorney. He's our Savior. Jot it down, number four. He's our mediator slash high priest. High priest, of course, is, uh, is Old Testament language for what a mediator is today. He's our mediator slash high priest. A friend of mine uh, fell behind in his child support payments. So he said, Dwight, you go, would you go, go to court with me? I said, sure. So there in uh, Berrien County, I went to court with my friend. 
And uh, this is all new to me, so I'm watching this. And so finally his name is called, and he's called to the front. And then the judge turns and he says, do we have the friend of the court here? I want to tell you something. If you're called to the court, and they're calling a friend of the court who's going to represent your spouse, you need to know right now, the friend of the court is never your friend. <laughs> and that friend of the court says, your, your honor, I'm here. Come here. How's he been? And she said, Your Honor, he's fallen behind here, here. We've, we've warned him here, 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 and here. Holy Scripture says, There is a friend of the court for every sinner brought to that tribunal. And Jesus is the friend of the court. That's the whole, that's the whole point of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to the faith we profess. And then this has to be the greatest verse in all of Hebrews. Therefore, he is able to save completely to the uttermost, the old King James says. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. We have a friend in court. Hallelujah. All right, he's a protagonist, he's a defense attorney, he's the savior, he's the friend of the court, and finally, guess what? He's also the judge. Yep, he is also the judge. <laughs> Unbelievable. Look at this, John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus speaking, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Wait a minute, Dwight, I thought you said the Ancient of Days is the judge. Well, you've got to get this straight. Jot it down. Even though the Ancient of Days is shown as the presiding judge of the heavenly judgment, Christ is declared to be the ruling judge. See? Collaboration. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not rocket science either. If your defense attorney happens to also be the judge, can you ever lose a case? <laughs> you win every time because I'm representing him. What was that again? I said, I said I'm representing him. All right, I'm very good. I'll... They're the same. The judge and the attorney are the same. You win. Some people are so ticked off with this unique teaching within our community of faith that they're doing everything they can to destroy this teaching. And I'm thinking, what is the problem? What is the problem? And by the way, lest you get to thinking, well, I just thank the Lord Jesus is on my side because you, know you, know, you know about the Father. Oh, you better know about the Father. Jot this down, will you? Don't have it in your study guide. John 16, 26, in that day, just before he was... Arrested in that day, Jesus says, you will ask in my name. And I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Nope. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Everybody. The Father loves you. The Father himself loves you. You don't have to be afraid of the judge, ladies and gentlemen. There are five key players. There's the Ancient of Days, the judge. There's the celestial jury. There's the protagonist. Guess what? You, you got it. There's an antagonist. There is an antagonist in this courtroom. Antagonist means opponent. For a defendant in court, if you're a defendant in court, the antagonist is always the prosecuting attorney. You got your own attorney. Trust me, the prosecuting attorney is never your friend, ever, ever. He'll make it look like he say, hey, let's just talk about this. What's your memory on this? Oh, don't you think? He'll try to draw it out of you, but he's only looking to kill you. The prosecuting attorney is the antagonist. Always. Is there an antagonist in this Daniel 7 courtroom scene? Absolutely. He, that's a puppet antagonist. It's just a puppet. 
But we know who the big, we, we know who the big honcho is behind the puppet. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. Probably the most dramatic courtroom scene in all of Scripture. This is dramatic, but it gets even more because you and I get drawn into this scene, and you know this scene, you love it. Zechariah chapter 3. Let me refresh your memory with this scene. So there, there he is, Zechariah's apocalyptic vision. He's shown Joshua, the high priest. Now, Joshua is representative of the entire sinful human race. No, the sinful community of Israel. Because Israel is filled with sinners. Present company not accepted. They were all sinners. So this Joshua, as a spiritual representative, the whole sin and race of us, whole sin and community of us, I should say. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And in the Hebrew it reads, Satan. Satan. There was a Satan who was there. It's not a proper name. We've turned it into a proper name. It's Satan. There was a Satan who was there standing at his right side, prosecuting attorney, to accuse him. And the Lord said to the Satan, The Lord rebuke you, you Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man, this sinner, a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Hey, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Hallelujah. That's a scene from the courtroom. It's going on right now. Right now. Jot it down, please. He is the, who is this antagonist? He is the Satan or the accuser. That's what it means in the Hebrew. The accuser of the human race. He is not your friend. Never trust Lucifer in your life, ever. Never argue with him. Eve did to her great and tragic loss. Never argue. If you've got something going on in your mind and you're trying to debate, you know, I've got 3,500 young adults in, our, in our, our parish, and it happens in their young minds, and it happens in your mind and mine too. Sometimes a little argument goes on back and forth. You kind of know which side is the right side, but you're listening to this argument. You're listening to it play out. Well, maybe may, may, if the argument starts in your brain, it's over. Stop it. The argument means something's up. Get away. He's never your friend. I want to share something very interesting about this courtroom scene that perhaps you've never seen before. The antagonist, in fact, let's, let's jot this down. The antagonist began his civil war against God's kingdom in God's temple, in the heavenly sanctuary. This whole thing started in the throne room, right next to the throne. The covering cherub right next to the throne launches the greatest tragedy in the history of the universe. It starts in the temple. That's a key point. You know what that means? The accuser who began his diabolical career by accusing God himself and his angelic sympathizers were cast out of God's sanctuary temple above, cast down to this earth. But ever since that defeat, Satan has turned his withering fire against the truth about God's temple. Because if he can neutralize the temple, he denudes the throne. He's going for the throne. So he attacks the teaching on the temple. Jot that down, will you please? If Satan can destroy the truth about God's temple, he can defeat the influence of God's throne. 
And that's why in apocalyptic prophecy, both in the Old and New Testaments, he's shown going straight for the temple. Watch this. This is Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, before the great cleansing of the sanctuary. Verse, this is verse 11. He even exalted himself, this puppet power for the antagonist. He exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him, this puppet power, the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his, Christ's sanctuary, was cast down. He's going for the temple. Look at this, Revelation chapter 13, verse 6, Then he opened his mouth, same puppet power, and blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. He's going for the temple. So don't be surprised when you're going to get a little something in the mail from somebody who got a hold of your address because they found out you're a medical personnel and you're a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and we're going to give you a free subscription to this magazine. Don't be surprised if somebody gets a hold of your name and will send you the magazine. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But you'll get the magazine, and the entire magazine will be devoted to destroying this teaching. That's not just this teaching. It's the key instrument who helped us see this teaching. That really is the hidden agenda. And I can speak in cryptic language, and you understand what I'm saying. That's the agenda. We had a representative of, uh, in fact, the head of this organization which is devoted to turning you into a former Seventh-day Adventist. It has one mission. Just like Amen has one mission, it has one mission. Turn them into formers. Just turn them into formers. It's sad. Anyway, he showed up in our community, figured, well, there's a university there. Let's see what we can do. Not that many came, but one of those in attendance described to me the ridicule and laughter that was heaped on the Bible teaching of the temple. And when I heard that, you know, it just cut me to the quick. I said, how sad. You're playing right into the hands of the antagonist. Why is the antagonist so ticked off with his teaching? Because the protagonist is the hero of this teaching. That's why. And he hates the protagonist. So I'm going to get rid of anything where Jesus is at the heart. You unwittingly have played into the antagonist's hands to destroy the glorious truth about Jesus in the everlasting gospel. Have mercy. It's sad. Don't let them. Listen, if, there's, if, if you're starting to feel a little something coming, you just call me up. You call me up night or day. I'll put you in touch with some bright minds who can help you work through this. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. All right. Finally, number five. I told you I'd sit down after this. Okay, fifth key player. Fifth key player in that heavenly courtroom going on right now, these would be the defendants. These would be the accused. These would be what the TNIV calls instead of the saints. I like that. Calls them the holy people. I like that. The holy people on earth. The holy people on earth. There's got to be a teaching behind that somewhere. The defendants, the accused, the holy people. Are they there? Sure they, sure they are. As I watched, Daniels writes, this horn was waging war against the saints, the holy people, and defeating them. Uh-oh until the ancient of days came and pronounced judgment, court is convened, in favor, notice this, in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom of God. Obviously, the secondary object of the antagonist or the accuser's attacks against the divine temple are the children of the judge of the divine temple. Like any weak despot, if you can't get the one you're going for, blow up innocent children and women. Just blow them up. Go for what you can get. Collateral damage. Take it. And that's what he's doing. 
And therein lies this very intriguing truth. Jot it down. There is no mention in the entire courtroom scene of Daniel 7 of the wicked slash unrighteous. They're not there. They are not mentioned in that courtroom because no one disputes their choice of Satan as Lord. So let's say, because Andrews University, uh, you know, is a, is a, a doctoral degree awarding institution. And so let's say that you're, you're, you're going to Andrews University and you, you want to get a Ph.D. in uh, the Boston Red Sox since we opened up with that. So you want to get a Ph.D. in the fan reactions to the team, the Boston Red Sox. What you're going to do is you're going to study Red Sox fans. You're going to interview them. You're going to examine them. You're going to critique them. You're going to put all of that into research. You're going to get a doctorate in that subject. Because you are focusing on the Boston Red Sox fans, they're the focus of your examination, what are you going to do with the Yankee fans? You're not going to do a thing with them. You're going on a third. Are you Boston Red Sox? No, I'm a Yankee fan. <laughs> Adios. Why aren't you talking to the Yankee fans? Because that's not the focus of your research. Your research is to study Boston Red Sox fans. There'll be a day if somebody wants to study the Yankee fans, it's just not the object of your focus. When God convenes this judgment, there is no question who's, who's allied to Satan. They've been very open. They've been very vocal. <laughs> My Lord is the Lord, is the prince of the air. So they're not going to interview him. They're not going to even talk to him. We don't need to. We know where you stand. We're looking for Boston Red Sox fans. We're looking for Jesus Christ fans. Have you ever professed to be a Jesus Christ fan? Yes, I have. Good. I want to examine you. I'm doing research. That's what's happening. That's why there are no Yankee fans listed in Daniel 7. They're not there. But you got the point. There's no mention of the wicked there because why? The heavenly judgment focuses instead on all throughout history who have declared their loyalty to God. That's all we're studying today, folks. We'll get to you later. Saying, do I come on? Yeah, we'll get to you. You're just not in this one. Got special research we're doing here. And as he did with Job, Satan does with the likes of you and me. Hey, God, you looking at this guy? <laughs> you, think he's, you think he's yours? <laughs> Look at him. What do, you think, what, do you, what do you think Lucifer was doing Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane? What do you think he's doing? He's whispering to Jesus, hey, hey, hero man, protagonist of heaven. How long have you been here? How many years again? Refresh my memory. How many do you have now? Oh, these are your closest? These are your closest friends on earth? One of them is about to sell you for 30 pieces. And the other 11? <laughs> you lose buckwheat. They're mine. They're all mine. Not one of them is yours. What Satan did that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, what he did in Joe. Hey, five. Please, Job. Of course he's happy in his marriage. Turn the heat on. You'll see this guy. He'll drop the marriage and you. That's what's going on. The friends of God. Anybody who said, I'm a, I'm a Red Sox fan. Good. You're going to be in this study. The friends of God, for however long they were friends, they're the ones that the study's focusing on. 
Because Satan is saying, I'm telling you, you got nobody down here. They are all mine. God says, all right, open the books. Let's find out. If the, let's find out. Let's find out if the rebel is right. And so he convenes, get this, he convenes a judgment. The court is seated and the books are thrown open. Does God have to pull the books out because, man, boy, that's, that, that name is familiar, but I can't put the face. Where, 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 where did I hear that name before? Give me that book. Give me the book. Get the books out. Let's, let me see what it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that one. Does God need the books for himself? Not in your life. Jot this down, never forget it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, the Lord knows. He knows. And Paul says, by the way, this thing is written in stone. This teaching is written in stone. God knows. He knows who are His. God knows. He needs no judgment to satisfy His curiosity or to trigger His memory. The records are not for Him. Who are the records for? Here they are. God audits the divine records of human beings in the heavenly sanctuary and invites the universe to look on. Check it out. Do I, you know, Lucifer says, I have no friends down here. I, not a zero, no friends on this planet. I want you to check it out. So open the books. Open the books right now. And they're all open. The investigative judgment, jot it down, please, isn't about a God trying to make up his mind in court, but about a God seeking to defend his friends in court. That's what it's all about. That's why it's such good news. Open up the books. Those who have rejected God are not the issue in the courtroom. Their choice of Satan is obvious, but the Word of God is absolutely clear. God starts with his friends. Well, well hey, but what, what about uh, Paul Pot? What about uh, Idi Amin? What about the, all of these genocides? Oh, God says, don't worry. I'll get to that. That's another court. That's another scene. Right now, it's Red Sox fans. Right now. Look at the Bible, it's so clear, jot this down, 1 Peter 4, 17, it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. I mean, what is the problem? You know, you've got people going around saying, it, just, it doesn't happen to a Christian. Explain that to Peter, will you? Your argument's not with me, it's with the Bible. Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us, Christians, Adventist Christians, yep, everybody. Hebrews 10, 30, the Lord will judge His people. Not his enemies, his people. Isn't that something? Uh, hey, 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 but wait a minute. Isn't there, didn't Jesus say that we're not going to come into judgment? That's a mistranslation of the Greek. That's why there's that, there's that confusion. Let me show you. The NIV actually gets it right here. King James doesn't. This is uh, John chapter 5, verse 24. I tell you the truth. And by the way, whenever you see I tell you the truth, or verily, verily in the King James, that's amen, amen. Two Greek words. It always means big red sign. Look here. Ooh, stop. Be careful. Watch this. Amen, amen. Whoever hears my word, Jesus says, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. King James says, won't go into the judgment. Well, the Greek word can be translated judgment or condemnation. The NIV says, hey, wait a minute, we can't put judgment because there, we just had three verses that said that they, they do go to judgment. So the word must be condemned. Whoever believes in me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death into life. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, it, it isn't that God's friends are not going to be examined in the divine judgment. Thanks to the accuser, they will be examined. It's not thanks to God. It's thanks to the accuser. They will be examined. But, hold on, it's that their lives won't be condemned when their name comes up in the judgment. That's the point. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. The everlasting gospel hasn't changed a whit. It's the people that don't get the teaching straight that have confused the issue. And that is precisely why Daniel 7 concludes with this triumphant announcement. I've got to read it again as I watch. This horn was waging war against the saints and it was defeating them until the ancient of days came and pronounced, notice this, judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they, the holy ones, will possess the kingdom. The divine judgment in the heavenly sanctuary courtroom reaches a verdict in favor of the saints. You see, ladies and gentlemen, final law. I think this is your last fill in the blank. When the, when the Hebrew defendant, all right, we got to stay context, stay, stay contextual. When the Hebrew defendant went to court, he was not concerned about the determination of guilt or innocence. She was utterly preoccupied with vindication and exoneration. Make sure you get both of those words in. Vindication and exoneration are the issue in a Hebrew court of law, not guilt and innocence. We know guilt and innocence. It's vindication. So that Jesus tells a story once upon a time about a widow who didn't even have a, uh, didn't even have a son to defend her. Some, some crook in town has picked on this little lady and is coming after her because she does not have an heir, is trying to actually possess her property. She has no defender. She goes to a judge. According to this little story Jesus told, she goes to a judge, and the judge, the judge sees this pitiful little lady coming in, and he's saying, man, I tell you what, if I hold out on this little thing, a little bit of pale, a little bit of something to grease my palm, I'll be sitting fine. And so she says, oh, judge, deliver me from my adversary. And the judge says, I don't know. I need to, I need to, I need to think about it. She never got the clue. She never, if she got the clue, she said, I'm not paying you a penny. She came back again. Judge, you've got to deliver me from the adversary. You know, I've got to think about it some more, ma'am. She kept bugging him until finally one day, according to Jesus' parable, he finally said, this woman is going to drive me crazy. I'm going to have to give her what she wants. And he ruled against the adversary, exonerating and vindicating her claim. That's the court of the Hebrew mind. The adversary is thrown out. I'm ruling in favor of the one who's vindicated. Vindicated. Hallelujah. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the truth, the life-changing truth about Revelation 14, 7, which you, you repeated so well. Fear God and give glory to Him for the It's now. That's what's going on right now. Right now. That's the gospel truth. That's what's going on right now. You're saying, Dwight, what's the good news of the judgment going on right now? There it is. The entire court is on your side. The entire court is on your side. I don't know about you, but if the defense attorney is also the judge, I think it would be the better part of wisdom to keep my case in his hands. Amen. What do you say? Amen. I want you to stand with me as we pray together. Oh, God. We're not surprised. When, when, when the Bible teaching 
is allowed to teach itself, we are not surprised that the antagonist of the kingdom of heaven would with tooth and nail go after this truth. But we are not deceived. We will not be dissuaded by his appeal. For the hero of heaven is our man, Christ Jesus. And because he is our hero, we know that the entire divine court is on our side. Oh, God, please, as medical professionals, as human beings, let there be no uncertainty where our case has been entrusted. Please, dear Father. And while every head is bowed in prayer, I need to ask you three questions. So if Fenway Park is going up in five minutes, we got five minutes till this park fills. If history as we know it can end suddenly, literally, overnight, three questions. What is it that has you handcuffed to the bleacher at the top of that stadium? What has you handcuffed right now? Your practice? Well, how could that be? Well, you know. Your portfolio? Some possession? Some passion? An addiction? A habit? An ambition? What is it that has us all handcuffed to the top row of the bleachers? Question number two, can you get the handcuff off in time? How much time do you have, Dwight? I guess all I have is today, not tomorrow. Not yesterday, just this moment. Can you get the handcuff off in time? And question number three, given the urgency of this hour, isn't it time we get serious about turning it all over to the one person who can save us? Come on, we play our little mind games and ah, I get to that. I mean, it's, come on, it's not a big deal, please. No, it's a huge deal. Living on the cusp of eternity, there are no insignificant decisions now. So what are you going to do? Want to give it to Jesus? Handcuffs and all, want to give it all to Jesus? I can't think of a more appropriate response in the courtroom as we're standing right now. And so if you'd like to take whatever it was that came to your mind, if we'd like to take this moment and say, Jesus, handcuffs and all, I give it all to you. Raise your hand and hold it up. Keep it up. Raise your hand and hold it up and say, Jesus, see that handcuff? Do you see that handcuff? Take it off of me. Give me the courage 
holy Christ to take it off. And if I can't, then you must take it off of me, please. Not tomorrow. Not when I get back. Do it right now. Work on me on this Sabbath. For I put my case in your hand, and I leave it there, holy Christ, until you come. Seal the decisions, dear God. Seal these decisions. We surrender. We surrender all to you. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.